Thanks for tuning in to High on Horror. I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. Today we're reviewing the hard-hitting emotional horror film A Banquet. This is another movie that you can find on Shutter, ready to stream with the click of a button, and it's well worth the watch. We have the director Ruth Paxton here today for a deep dive interview. Plus, we got some questions to answer that some of you listeners wrote into us. All that and more today on High, High on, on Horror. Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. Let's start this episode off right by getting right. It's time for Strain Wreck, the segment of our show where we discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in this episode and discuss current events. Nope came out last weekend to uh, some solid reviews. We haven't seen it yet. but uh, I've seen a lot of mixed reviews online. Well, you know, let's take a second, though, because we haven't seen it yet, to just thank Jordan Peele for being a humble guy and an honest guy by paying John Carpenter respect. Yeah, some uh, rando... Apparently, it's a comic book creator named Adam Ellis. I'm not familiar with him. Uh, but he posted, he said, I know this is a hot take, but at what point do we declare Jordan Peele the best horror director of all time? Can you think of another horror director that had three great films, let alone three in a row? Several. I can't. I mean, yeah. I was talking with Nicole. I was like, yeah, even if you take away and just go with his three great films, like just that is a yeah. bunch of horror directors. Yeah. Uh, but Jordan Peele objected. And he said, sir, please put down the phone, I beg you. Then followed up with a second tweet and said, sorry, I love your enthusiasm, but I will not tolerate any John Carpenter slander. <laughs> yeah, man, also, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's awesome that uh, Jordan Peele doesn't, I like that he's humble enough that he doesn't like hold himself up on this pedestal that everybody's put him on. You know what I mean? And it's funny because I saw people in different horror groups where they're like, I don't like Jordan Peele's movies, but I respect him for saying this. I mean, whoever wrote that, I, I'm not familiar with the guy either, but he clearly never saw any George Romero films or David Cronenberg films. I mean, Wes Craven films like, uh, ho holy shit. What kind of question is that? Or statement is that to make? Has there ever been a director who's done three good horror movies, let alone three in a row? That's, the, that's just like, a, that's a really stupid statement. Another comment said, this is what happens when you let people say they're horror fans and they're only familiar with anything from 2010 on. <laughs> but, uh, we also, we also oh, yeah, got, you got some, some smoke. You got some smoke over there. I got some there. new shit this week. I got some sour kosher. It's uh, some small buds, so they, they gave a bit of a discount. Sour kosher. I'm going to take a look at this. At, I mean, you should like it. It's a tasty sativa strain, and it mm. comes. it's a cross of the AJ cut of Sour D and their own award-winning kosher kush. Uh, influence, uh, its influences slow down uh, uh, the high a bit, leaving you feeling a bit more relaxed and at ease with the sour diesel. So you get that gassy, piney, and sour aroma, and... Uh, it's, it's got a pretty good amount of THC in it. You, it you, you got the bag. Huh? It smells so good. It's like, uh, it's sweet. It almost doesn't smell like weed. It smells like, uh, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's almost, it, it smells like some sort of fruit. You know, it's it's really sweet smelling. That's impressive. I'm looking forward to it. Like, hopefully it's a, a, it tastes as good as it smells on top of, you know, getting us wrecked. Yeah. My God, they make these bags sometimes. 
hard as shit to see how much THC is in it, but it looks like it's about 18.5%. That's man, We got a fatty daddy rolled right here. That's because our boy Kenny's term, fatty daddy. It's the first time I heard that from him, the, from anybody. Where the fuck did I put this lighter? <laughs> um, oh, there it is. Uh, okay, so uh, while, you, while you light that up, the Jeepers Creepers 3 trailer dropped, as did the poster. And uh, uh, I, I thought it looked amazing. Did you take a chance to watch it? I sent it to you. I don't know if you watched I it I haven't or not. seen the trailer, but uh, that poster does look nice. I'm okay. I'm not a big Jeepers Creepers fan. I like fans. I'm not a big Jeepers Creepers fans. <laughs> it's like OnlyFans for Jeepers Creepers fans. <laughs> but more than one. <laughs> They're okay. There's some people that like absolutely love all of them, but the, uh, fir- the yeah, first no. two are solid. Yeah, the first one's the best one. The second one's good. The third one is uh, forgettable, and I I, I would I don't and won't own that one. Um, but this one actually looks really good, and it, it's in theaters. I think three days. I think it's the. I should have this information in front of me. We posted it on our Instagram. I think it's the eighteenth, nineteenth, and twentieth, or the nineteenth, twentieth, and twenty-first of September. It's in theaters for three days only. So we definitely need to get our asses to the theaters to see that one. Um, and doing so many fucking horror movies. I know. This year. And get you guys a review, get you listeners a review for that, because that's going to be one everybody's looking forward to. Uh, it looks like, uh, the tr- from the trailer, uh, it, it looks good. Like I said, uh, I keep saying it looks good, it looks good. Um, it looks like the local town is celebrating a festival uh, like, where they're paying homage to the Creeper as like a local legend, and people are kind of dressing up and cosplaying and shit, and the Creeper actually like wakes urban up. urban legend. Yeah, and it, well, the Creeper actually wakes up. It's been 23 years as this festival is happening. Um, so uh, he goes to this con, we'll call it a con, a con, he goes to the con and he sniffs out his prey and then he lures them into his home. The protagonists think that they're going into an escape room, but they end up at the creeper's house. Like they, they mentioned that they're looking to go to an escape room and then the trailer shows that they end up at the house and they think they're in an escape room and then until some crazy shit goes down, that's when they realize, oh shit, we're not in an escape room. So clearly somewhere along the way, that's not something that's not shown in the trailer is like they're misled somehow from going to the actual escape room room to going to the creeper's house i'm sure the creeper has something to do with that but they're misled from going to an escape room and end up in the creeper's new lair where it's booby trapped like saw like it's got like saw traps everywhere um uh, but uh, yeah it looks good um i'm still so not the a fan creeper wants to play a game <laughs> i'm still not a fan of how the creeper looks we posted pic- remember when we posted those pictures yeah. a few months ago of uh uh, uh like look cool on the poster though yeah uh you know but i'm not i'm not a fan of what what i saw of the the, the leaked pictures you can google them or uh I, I think that was in our story on instagram i didn't want to get in any trouble or out the movie and uh, have them be like super like seen everywhere so i mean i thought it was posted in our story but we 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 posted pictures of what the creeper looks like in the new film the photos are out there if you google them you can find them i'm not impressed with his look but the trailer looked good and the look of the creeper isn't enough to make or break the film for me so i'm definitely going in it has to be better than three um i think there's definitely room to give to be better than than two I don't know if it'll be better than one. I don't know if there will ever be a Dreepers Creepers movie better than the first one. But um, this yeah, one, I don't know if there'll be one as good as the first. Right. Well, they say, though, the, the early reviews of this one say that this is the scariest Dreepers Creepers. Now, we know to take that with a grain of salt because everybody hypes shit up. You know, we got people saying that Jordan Peele's the only director who's directed three horror films. So take it with a grain of salt. But people are saying it's the scariest Dreepers Creepers film ever. So we'll see if that's true or not. <laughs> Speaking of trailers, Halloween ends. Yeah, I knew talk, you were going to bring that up. We talked about it was coming out, but I mean, I say it about every Halloween. All the trailer looked good. Yeah, I told you that uh, 
they said i heard that like the last like 19 minutes of the film or something like that i don't know if it's going to actually be that long but the end of the film is an actual showdown between michael and laurie and that's basically what the trailer shows you and they even show even laurie's even wearing a uh, blue button up to kind of reminisce or pay homage to what she wore I in 78 that. yeah so uh i mean what did you think of the trailer i thought it looked awesome i mean fucking michael myers trying to put her hand down the fucking drain down the uh, garbage disposal i was like oh it's getting dark also uh people have pointed out that well i mean it's in the plot there's a second michael but the one scene that shows michael come in you can look at his left hand and he has all five fingers no shit i didn't notice that That, what scene is that it's the one where it's like the 78 with him creeping up the house yeah yeah yeah. and then he opens the door and laurie's there with the gun yeah yeah if you watch when he pushes the door he's got his left hand it's all five fingers oh shit oh I, i did not see that's something that but it's funny because when it shows her fighting him He's missing his fingers. Like later yeah. when she stayed, because it should have stabbed him in the hand. And I mean, they kind of missing the fingers and fingers and uh, Halloween uh, kills. Right. So, yeah. So, okay. Well, so I saw that theory about a second Michael, but I, I didn't really. Well, it's in the plot that there is a second Michael. It's in the plot that there's a second yeah, Michael. Yeah. If you read on the YouTube, it's in the plot. There's another guy. Oh, what is it? Like somebody's like. Uh, Copycat. Uh, oh, shit. Oh, man. So you're going to be dealing. Oh, okay. I can. I can. I can do, I can dig that, but uh, I guess that's their homage to four. I, I, I mean, that's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it though. I, a lot of people are bitching about the trailer. I thought it looked good. Um, I like that Lori says, "Come and get me, motherfucker!" in yeah. the trailer, and it lets her. Um, but uh, no, I just want to take a second though to just say like, that's what I like about James Jude Courtney as Michael Myers. Is not only is he swole, which he is swole for this movie, like he looks huge, but uh. It's the fact that, like, his Michael, he did it in, in, in 2018 as well. He plays fucking dirty. Like, he doesn't just, like, stab you or come at you. Like, we talked about in the Halloween Kills, how he stabbed the old man, like, re- repeatedly, like, way too many times. Or the old old woman, I mean. But, um, but I mean, like, like no, Jesus. No, it, it was a guy. Are you, are you talking yeah, about the yeah, one in the, the back the where he stabbed cushion? him? Like, yes, yeah, pin cushioned his back. But, like, the way, like, in, like uh, when he's fighting Laurie in this new trailer, and he grabs her hand, he's like, legit, like, just trying to force her hand down. The, he turns the garbage disposal on, and then he's trying to force her hand down the drain. I'm like, this isn't Michael just trying to yoke you up and hold you against the wall. Like, he is, like, physically, like, he tried intentionally, to he is intentionally trying to cause as much physical harm and play as dirty. He's like Rick Flaring. And, and he's like, he's like the, the four horsemen. Michael Myers right now just you know remember Ric Flair's uh, nut kick glory uh, win if you can lose if you must but always cheat <laughs> you know and I just feel like Michael just he's just playing I mean granted he's missing some fingers so he's got to do what he's got to do yeah. but I love how dirty he's playing because he's already got an advantage like you don't need to be a scumbag about it but but I love it it's I'm looking forward to it man for sure yeah I, I wonder if the time jump if we're just gonna jump because there's a four-year time jump so I'm not sure if we're just jumping straight in or if it's going to be like maybe a couple minutes, like like how the last one picked right up. Well, I guess it was still all the same night and Halloween ends, really. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if it's just going to pick back up there and then we're going to jump ahead. I wonder if there'll be any more 78 flashbacks. That was amazing. I, I don't know, but that would be really cool if there was. Uh, uh, I'd have no problem with the way Loomis looked, but just the whole, you know. Um... Did Michael kill again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah the, 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 there was something off about the voice. If they could just adjust that a little like bit. Like I told you, I just finally watched the extended cuts. Before, I had only just watched to see what the end was. And through that scene every time, just when he comes in, it's just something about the way he says again. Yeah, remi- Michael Gilligan. <laughs> it reminds me of fucking Chris Jericho. Uh, uh, when he's like, you'll never be the same again. again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, that's totally a good one, man. Um, 
All right, well, before we get off track and ramble, which we usually do during this segment, what's going on this week in horror history? This week in horror history. All right, so uh, this week we got the night Evelyn came out of her grave. That is a... That's a long-ass title. <laughs> well, uh, I, here's the thing. I don't want to go too much into this because I swear we talked about oh, this. Oh, sorry, 1972. Right, yeah. Uh, but I swear that we talked about this last July, so I don't want to go too much. I don't think much. we did. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. But um, You high. This this is one of my favorite covers of all time. Um, it's not the best Jallo, but it's, it's definitely good. And the American cover are always stuck with me. I saw it when I was young, way before I ever saw the film. Um, it's brilliant. The The director, uh, Emilio, I uh, hope I say this right. It's been a long time since I've heard his name said aloud. Uh, Emilio, Emilio Maragalli. Marag- <laughs> Maraglia. Maraglia. No, nah, I said it right. Uh, yeah, Mergliata. Mergliata. No, <laughs> there's Mergliata. no D. There's no D. <laughs> no, I was saying fucking damn Mer- Mergliata, the fucking UFC rap. <laughs> well, uh, the director's name is uh, Emilio Maraglia. And uh, he also directed The Red Queen Kill Seven Times, which is another good Jallo that I own. Um, I haven't seen any of his non-Jallo films, but he's only directed six films. Uh, Up next, we got the first uh, Halloween film that I got to see in theaters. Um, For me, I will say I feel like I don't like it as much as when it came out. And uh, Halloween H2O, or just H2O, Water. Uh, yeah man you know i like h2o we we went over this on our halloween it's episode that fucking mass man that's what that's what does which it one there's like fucking seven well, of them like you see way too much of his eyes is it seven again i'm i'm off right now I Usually forget, one of them's fucking digital i am that not calibrated is, oh right now God. yeah that's the worst that's like the best scene make. in the movie that's what sucks like that kill with the fucking uh with the, the what he does to charlie well you don't really see what he does but you know like that that scene is really one of the best scenes and uh the mask, like you said, and I didn't know it was CG until I saw it extra on the DVD. I thought that it just looked bad or like the lighting was bad. And then I'm like, that makes sense. I thought that shit looked thing. off. Yeah, it looked off. You could tell. But I mean, that and the original and part two were like my favorites until the new uh, tr- the new trilogy started. Now, the, I think uh, 2018 and Kills probably edged that one out of my top three for sure. I like both 2018 and Kills better than That's it. what I'm saying, yeah. I like Halloween. If we're not including three, I like two more, and I also like uh, four more. So, what are your three favorite Halloween films right now? If you had to pick three out of the entire series, obviously the first one. Yeah, obviously the OG number one. Uh, Mine, I would do the OG, uh, the OG kills and uh, Halloween two. Oh, you like the kills better than 2018? Yeah, I said that in our review. Yeah, I like the the build up of it kills, but I like just it was more to just to the point in killing. Two minutes ago, it was more to the point in killing. So yeah, I go with kills. Right now, I would go the original. 18, even though it's funny because I the my least favorite scene is that doctor scene. I hate that. (laughs) I don't know that each one that in kills has one. The kills is that whole scene with the patient i get the whole message but that that for that movie and for 18 with sartan stabbing uh our boy uh, what the hell is his name 
Hawkins. Yeah. So you're not calibrated either. <laughs> but anyway, Halloween 2018. And I guess I would go the original number two. Yeah. So we're both, so we basically same, same three, but we swapped, uh, 2018 and kills dude it's funny because it's like i almost like hate talking about halloween 2018 with you because every time every fucking time regardless of if we're just talking about a specific scene in that movie uh if we're talking about that it, yes, you have to fucking bring up the dr sartanes every time like let but it go. i feel it's if you, important if you can move past it then please let it go <laughs> i can't bro that is one of the me. worst scenes. It did not bother in the me. The entire franchise's history. <laughs> in the entire history. Damn. I didn't say the worst. I said one of the worst. I mean, like it's still better than White Horses, though, right? I. Well, we're talking about the. I guess. Never mind. When I, I just blocked those out of my mind. So like, I didn't even consider Rob Zombies. I was figuring all non-Rob Zombie Halloweens. You're just like, those Rob. are a separate <laughs> horror unto themselves. It's like beginning of Halloween to Rob Zombies Halloween to the end of Rob Zombies Halloween. The worst sequences in the Halloween franchise ever. From Rob Zombies H1 to the end of H2. <laughs> That's just the worst. What else we got going on, man? Yeah, we we only two movies in. Uh, one of my all-time favorite Friday the 13th. I loved this so much as a kid. Jason Takes Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, that's the one my sister Tara liked growing up. She always liked Jason Takes Manhattan. It's so bad, and it doesn't make any fucking sense, especially the end. Yeah, the that end when he's a little boy. zero sense. Right. I never understood it as a kid, and... Nobody could explain it to me, but I'm like, fuck it. I still like it. Why Why did he turn back into a kid? I don't know. But this movie's awesome. <laughs> the funny thing is they kind of repeated that in Freddy vs. Jason, too. Speaking of Freddy vs. Jason, in the dream, he's just like randomly a little boy shivering, and Freddy like sticks Which, his blade in his temple. I, I, it's a dream, right? So, I mean, that's more, acceptable, makes right? more sense than somehow the sewer fills with toxic sludge every night. And somehow the toxic sludge doesn't scar him in any way. He actually takes away his scars and brings him back to being a boy. It shrinks him and brings him back to his youth, right? It's that uh it's like Jack Nicholson needed that shit in Batman. <laughs> so he wouldn't have gotten all disfigured. But um no, uh did you ever see the extra footage like that in the pictures of uh that big Jason head that was supposed to be in the sewer at the end? They never yeah. ended up like using it, but it was just like a huge Jason head, like absolutely ridiculous. But uh and also that came out in eighty nine. I'm doing a bad job, I think. Unless I said it. I, I don't know. know. I'm I don't doing know. a bad we're just, job. We're high, we're cruising today. But no, J uh I like Jason Takes Manhattan. I said before that uh Jason Takes Manhattan is like uh it's like it followed by Jason goes to hell and it's like they it's like that's when you know the series kind of started to take a downfall, even though I still like Manhattan. It's like Manhattan takes Jason out of Crystal Lake and then Jason goes to hell, took Jason out of Friday the thirteenth. So it's kind of like, you know, when one you're missing Camp Crystal Lake and then in the next you're missing Jason. But Jason takes Manhattan was fun. Uh, there's a lot of good kills in that movie. The acting is, is ridiculous, it's the what you'd expect. Great eighties music. The fucking best kill for me is uh, the the fucking 
Help me out here, man. In the in the sauna, that's that rock. What do you oh, call that? What I, is, for, what, oh, I forget. What okay, kind of the, so that, that that hot rock. <laughs> We're gonna call it a he hot, took that rock. hot rock. He took that black hot rock and just fucking slams it through my man's chest. That is just absolutely brutal. And the fact that Jason, I get that you're a tough motherfucker, but you picking up like some like scolding rocks with your bare hands, or fingerless gloves rather, not bare hands, but fingerless gloves. So I mean, I don't know. Yeah, Jason's a bad motherfucker. I tried to look it up quickly to see if i could find any names and just keep saying sauna rocks okay it's which a sauna i know rock. that ain't right we'll call it that whatever it's a hot sauna rock i just happened to glance the quote was it says the best choice for sauna rocks are the ones closest to home that are suitable composition the quote doesn't mean anything the guy's name is dick Waskey. <laughs> dick whiskey <laughs> maybe he gets it but Waskey. Okay, no, uh, but uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, I've said this before, my three favorite films of the originals are uh, part four, part one, and uh, it's, it always switches, but I'm going to say part three. I think part one, one, three, and four are my favorites Damn, and um six, but, but then but no but then when i get those are like my favorites of like the serious ones and then when it gets into like the fun ones jason takes manhattan jason lives and uh i hate to say because i love the movie but i find the remake to be really fun i like so the i would put that as like in the fun ones as well i don't even know that the original's in my top three <laughs> that's well, probably fucked up but we talked about this before the original has the best motive best plot yeah. you know but I just take Jason to be fun movies. I like six, two, and four. You like two because of our girl Lauren Marie Taylor. <laughs> I mean, two's a solid one. Jason shows he don't care. People in wheelchairs can get it too. I know, man. And that's the worst part about it was my man was about to hook up. Like, Jason, that was cock blocking. Like, <laughs> at least, I'll uh, no, see, here we go. Uh, I don't have my notes in front of me, and I'm not, I'm terrible with names. If you listen to this podcast, you'll know. But the couple. In the film, who are doing it, and Jason gets impaled to the pitch impales him with the pitchfork. At least, like my man got like he was raw dog and he got it in. He like was raw at least my man was like you know he did his job, but you know he was he was he was getting it done before Jason stabbed him. So it's like at least he kind of like got to go out on like I, I hate to sound like I don't know like but I just he got to go out like you know hitting his girl. He was you know he was having a good time until bam like. The last minute of his life sucked, but besides that, he went out on a high note. Whereas my man in the wheelchair, Mark, I believe his name is, I want to say Mark, he just got completely cock-blocked. Like, he got he got his hopes up, his, the girl was going and getting dressed in every Laura Marie Taylor, she was going she and getting, her, fingers. Getting, them brown, <laughs> getting them brown panties on, she was going to do her thing, you know, and that's cock-blocking to the max. Like, that's just, man, you got my man's hopes up. So anyway, back to Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've probably brought this up before. I, I feel like I probably have. If not, well, if I have, fuck it. You're going to hear it again. They were supposed to shoot most of the movie in Manhattan. That was the plan. And for whatever reason, nobody decided to ever look into what the costs were. And then they saw how much it was and were like, yeah, we could film like 30 minutes. <laughs> There's just some shit, though. Like, that's one of those movies where you have to be willing to ignore certain shit because like if you want to say oh it's it's just jason on a boat it's stupid like whatever but then if you if you really boat. break it down like why is there just a, a fucking uh, a barrel of vat of fucking like toxic waste just chilling in an alleyway like you know what I mean? <laughs> there's shit like that it's that new are just, york what? in the 80s dude <laughs> uh, 
that's the uh, the trash can of prostitutes and druggies from the eighties. It just turns into toxic waste after like a week. Um, but best kill is not the uppercut. Oh, I said it was the sawdust node. I know. I'm just saying though. Like, you ain't picking the uppercut. <sighs> I he, mean, when he uppercuts his head, sends it rolling into the trash can, and then the lid closes. I'm going to still go with the sauna rock just because I just think that's brutal. Still just... a better scene than Dr. Sartain with Hawkins. Oh, my God. <laughs> or White you Horses. Know. I don't... I'm not even doing That's that. how I... I'm going to dethrone that. Every time you bring up Sartain, I'm going to bring up the White Horse, and you'll just eventually bitch about Rob Zombie again and forget about Dr. Sartain. I think I figured you out. <laughs> Damn. I'm going to have to change... Just... I'm going to have to Roddy Piper, and I'm going to have to change the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Your wrestling references are on point today. <laughs> uh, 1999. I think you're more of a fan of it than I am. The Blair Bitch. I mean, Blair Witch Project. <laughs> yeah, I, I I really like the first film. Um, I like the newer film too. Uh, Blair Witch. The Blair Witch Project. Or no, it's just called the Blair Witch that uh, Adam Winger did. Um, you know, bringing up Godzilla versus Kong. The director of that. Uh, wow, you brought up a Godzilla movie, Chuck. <laughs> He, uh, the, I like the the Blair Witch that he did, and I like the original that you're talking about from 1999. Uh, scared the shit out of me when I first saw it. The, 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 to me, just being a kid and watching them when they're lost in the woods and just kept coming across that same log, that was just scary. Like I felt the claustrophobia of that, and like just like the feeling lost. Um, it didn't, doesn't really affect me like that anymore, and has it since. But that first watch really stuck with me, and because of that, I always kind of hold it in a high regard but it really honestly truthfully it doesn't really have rewatchability once you see it i don't really see there being like there's nothing to gain from seeing it again because truthfully nothing happens when you don't know what's going to happen and you're watching it for the first time you're going along for the ride after that and you realize nothing really happens you don't really need to see people arguing in the woods for an hour and a half again because we were kids when that came out well yeah like, like middle school, I, right? I was like yeah i was like Ele- 13. Yeah, not elementary that's too young middle El- school elementary <laughs> I don't know why I said, said it like in a, I don't know what's wrong with you it's anyway. A British person tries, terrible British accent trying to say elementary. Elementy? I don't think that's how British people say it. Maybe nah, I'm, dog, you ain't cultured like me. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, I don't even know where the fuck I was going with it at this point. Oh, yeah. So I think I was, yeah, I was like 13 or something like that when it came out. Did you think that it was really before they like, I think it was shortly after it came out, they were like, oh, it's not real that the people were lost. Did did, did you buy into that hype? No, I never bought into that hype. I always... Uh... I did. And then I look it back, I was like, why the fuck, why the fuck would they just allow people that disappeared to have their like footage just released as a fucking movie? Exactly. That's what you'd have to ask. It's like, that's like, that would be crime scene footage. That wouldn't be uh You'd find that in the evidence lab. You wouldn't find that, you know, in, in uh, on a, playing on a movie theater screen. But uh, no, I, I didn't really buy into it. I figured it was just actors, but uh, I didn't really even know that they were hiding. I just thought they were just no namers, and nobody really cared who they were. And honestly, they really haven't done anything since, you know. But uh, were they were were they put into hiding? Yeah, they deliberately. It was a deliberate thing. I like, didn't know if it was just like people didn't know who the fuck they were. So. That's what I thought what it was. But no, they deliberately slayed low for a bit while the movie was coming out to kind of stir the controversy and keep the the bit, the bit myth up about it. But look, I'm not, you know, we've talked about Ty West before and slow burns and I am not that kind of guy that needs like you just show me the monster. I'm fine 
with ambiguous stuff. I'm fine with not seeing things. But I really, really, really feel like the Blair Witch should have showed the witch. Like, I really just feel like it's missing something. It, it, it dragged on too long without, with, with, we talked before, if you're going to do that, there has to be a payoff. And the payoff is my man standing in the corner and then the camera falls. It's like, that's, that you wait an hour and a half for that. You know what I mean? Like, you don't even hear like kids chanting and shit. Like, like nothing. So it was just, I just feel that like there was a little bit of too, there was too little nothing in that finale to like make it be like a great movie like some people say it is i i think that it was a great experience i don't think it's a great movie there you go put it put me down into that that's my quote about it put it on the board put it on the board and then uh lastly for this week this is uh i mean geez i think i think i think this has been one of the longest uh horror hits we've done in a while horror hits but that's good because we have some where there's like nothing to talk yeah. about what was, it, what was it, like two weeks ago? It was like two movies that I haven't even seen. And you were literally like, just go listen to a previous episode if you want a better uh, horror history from us. And then like, yeah, I mean, I'm surprised I ain't, I ain't, surprised I ain't, ain't get bitched out saying, how, 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 how are you having two on there and you ain't even seen them? Because that's how bad that week was, okay? It might not actually been that bad. Who knows? It's all a blur at this point. But fuck. Lost Boys, 87. My favorite vampire like the movie. third best vampire movie. <laughs> My favorite vampire like movie. third best vampire movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, I grew up with this movie. Um, this is this was what Twilight, like, basically tried to be. The Lost Boys was, like, Twilight in the 80s. It was the 80s rock and roll version of like twilight it was the cool kids coming in and now it's hip to be a vampire it's cool you know attractive people dressing hip being badasses being rebels as introducing that from going gothic like barlow from salem's lot and dracula yeah to basically hair metal yeah and uh that was kind of the thing was like oh now it's cool to be a vampire and uh yeah, the Twilight tried to do that again, and it was just a joke. But I love the Lost Boys, got, everything got, about it. It's got the Kiefer's. The thing about the Lost Boys is just it is so rewatchable. Like it's it is just like I could always watch it, always laugh. Um, knowledge Nug, uh, the Lost Boys vampires are, are inspired. Um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Buffy the Vampire from the TV show, Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer series. The vampires on that show were inspired by the Lost Boys vampires. I mean, it's kind of obvious. If you look at Spike's face or Angel's face and you look at yeah. Kiefer Sutherland's um, eyes and oh, eyes and all. Um, and also, before we move on, uh, I believe it's in October. Uh, there, if Fright Night's coming out on 4K, as is the Lost Boys. It's coming out on 4K. Uh, Lost Boys in, and Fright Night are both getting steelbooks. Uh, if you order the Lost Boys steelbook from Zavi, you get a hard box edition that comes with a poster and a bunch of other shit. So if you're just if you just want the steel book, go to Best Buy. If you want to get a bunch of extra shit and like a bigger case for it, you're gonna order that shit from Zavi, but it's not available for order yet. So uh, keep your eyes and ears open because I'm gonna get my order and all that. Yeah, so like it's a good vampire movie. Like I said, it's top three. I got uh, Near Dark. And uh, Fright Night ahead which, of Which is funny because those are all my three as well. They're just yeah. out of order. Mine's Fright Night. I'm sorry, Lost Boys. Well, no, you got it right Near Dark. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but I've, with Buffy though, I've only ever watched the movie. I've never watched the TV. I mean, I've seen when Nicole's watched the TV show, so I can't say I've never watched it. But I've never like sat down and watched an episode like beginning the end and like paying attention to it it's good man it's i think buffy is like kind of like harry potter where 
Well, that would make you not watch it. So let me not <laughs> yeah, use like, that. If, okay. In the sense that it's Buffy is consistent, but it's like once she hits like once like season three and four hit, that's when shit gets dark because they're older and they're dealing with. So it's like once season seasons one through three are, are fun, they deal with some dark shit. But once seasons uh, three and four and five and six and seven hit. It's like, oh, damn, like, you know, there's, like, attempt, like, a boss. But at one point, Spike almost tries to rape Buffy. You know, like, it gets pretty that's dark. that's selling point. Well, that's, like, just, just to let you know how dark it gets at just, that point. I know you, know? you guy, Buffy and let me dies, tell you. She dies and comes back, and they don't do the shit that they do on Supernatural, where she dies every episode and is brought back, so you, like, you're not like, oh, it's okay, she'll be back. Like, no, like, she legit dies, and she comes back, and it's, like, some Pet cemetery shit. You would like Buffy. I'll have to check it out, but it's interesting in your pitch to me. You go, well, you know, since I know you, I'll tell you the stuff you like. It has almost rape. <laughs> <laughs> I was using that as an example for how dark the show got. Now, Maybe uh, it was a bad again, example, I know but... nothing about either of these, but uh, were you a, uh, did you like Buffy or did you like Angel? Oh, I was always a Spike fan. Um, well, I mean, like the show. Oh, oh, Buffy, 100%. Um. I thought Angel was terrible. I didn't watch I watched Angel, but I didn't really want to watch it until the final season when Spike came on. Spike joined after Buffy died. Spike he, Dudley? <laughs> William the Bloody. After he, he, he went over to uh, Angel after Buffy ended. So I started watching Angel then and went and, gotten caught, uh, went and got caught up on the prior seasons and just was not impressed. I'm, just, I don't, I'm not a fan of David Bananas. <laughs> David Bananas? <laughs> David Bananas. Anyway, we have been rambling on for horror history for like I gotta say probably twenty plus minutes. Bro, and this blunt is still going. This I is know. A fucking this powerhouse right it's, here. It's it did not start well at all. We're naming this blunt Kevin Nash. <laughs> Kevin Nash, R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, it's gonna be really awkward if uh, he dies at the top before we <laughs> record this for the post. That'd uh, be creepy. Yeah, that would not be cool. Anyway, uh, please don't die, Kevin Nash. We love you, Big Sexy. <laughs> now, I think it's time to get on to Puff Puff Ass, the segment of our show where you listeners send us questions through email at highonhorror420 at gmail.com, Insta, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all that shit. And high on high, high, God damn. High on Horror 420. Damn, I struggle with that one. I think it's like two weeks in a row I've struggled with this. Yeah, segment. I don't know. That, that line gets you. I peaked. I peaked halfway through last season, I think. Jason Kershaw from Los Angeles. Uh, he wrote in and he asked us, uh, do you feel that Jordan Peele is overrated? Now, I, I saved this question. This was written to us last season, but I saved this because Hope was being talked about. And I was like, we should wait until the new movie comes out instead of just randomly talking about Jordan Peele. Uh, no, I, I think that he is incredibly talented. He is really good. Like he is good. Like it's not, it's not just people saying somebody who sucks like Rob Zombie. It's not people backing a director that sucks. Like he, he is good. I get why people like him. He has a fresh set of eyes that the genre needs and he's killing it with original ideas. The problem is all these fans, like we talked about earlier with that tweet that don't really know shit about horror movies, hyping his shit up. I would say he's in like the two top current directors in the genre right now, him and Scott Derrickson. It's funny because he's it, that is true about like he's pulled a lot of people over from the comedy world, which I mean is nice. But yeah, you get opinions like that the second time I mention him. But it almost gets to the point where sometimes where you're like, damn, he's an incredible director, but you people are driving me nuts with yeah. thinking of like, like he's like the greatest of all time. 
Like, I feel like that's, like, the problem is, like, those people are just so hyping him, but that you're like, he's good, but, like, it becomes annoying because of his fan base. Yeah, exactly. Like, like Joe Bob said, elevated horror is a word for people who don't like horror movies to describe their like of a horror movie. And I feel that that's a lot of it. I feel that the Jordan Peele fans, a lot of them aren't horror fans as that would make sense as the dude who sent that tweet he sounded like a fucking idiot um wow you know like yeah but you know just obviously uh a lot of the people that follow (laughs) him from the comedy world and from other things that he's done they uh they don't watch horror they're not horror fans so they consider the fact that like he watched he does horror movies like oh my god like somebody who's actually talented is doing horror i love it and he's so good and it's like just shut up but the (laughs) nice thing is that jordan respects the genre genre yeah and the, and the directors before it i i guess i never really answered it no i don't feel he's overrated i sometimes do think us is a little overrated for me i thought it went a little long i know a lot of people that's their favorite yeah that's my favorite yeah. i like it out better but i mean they're both good movies i mean i don't really have problems yeah scott derrickson's a good one i mean I'm going to have to throw my boy Edgar's out there Edgar's for, for another good director. Ty West. Ty West. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if you heard, Ty uh, Delaware. if you, <laughs> if you heard Scott Derrickson, uh, Robert Eggers, Ty West and Jordan Peele are working on a project together. Like I wouldn't I want to like, see that anthology horror movie. Cause that's what it's going to be. I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I've I already wouldn't, made it for, <laughs> I wouldn't, uh, think, Oh damn, that's going to suck. I'd be like, damn, they, that's a lot of like brain power. A lot of the thing about these directors is that they're knowledgeable. They're not just people trying to make a movie. They're knowledgeable. So, like, every thought, every scene is going to have intent, and you're going to know there's going to be hidden shit in there. And uh, it's one of the... I, I, yeah, I dig their shit. All those guys. Their name above something will always mean more to me than than Eli Roth presents. Eli Roth. Just shooting from the hip here, being straight. Look, I'm not trying to shoot on anybody or gain us a bad reputation with nobody like you're trying to do with Rob Zombie, but... But uh, but, uh you, I just yeah, I gotta so, call it like it is. You doing the same thing? You got you got your own you got your own white you got your own white horse, Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> Eli, Roth. My, Eli Roth is my white horse. <laughs> Fair enough. Our next question is from Kevin Nash. <laughs> it's from Steve F on uh, Instagram, and uh, wanted us to name a horror film that has a scene with a song that you love in it. Uh, the whole the whole movie of Maximum Overdrive, just all ACDC. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> no, uh, but one when you said that it popped out of my head. American Psycho. When oh, he played uh, Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis in the news. That's a good one. Damn, that's a good one. Yeah, my uh, that that's a fucking solid answer actually. Um. I just don't like that. I can't say I don't like Hip to Be Square. That's that's uh. But it's catchy when you got fucking Christian Bale just like yeah, dancing that's around. A, I can't say I don't even like the song. I do like the song. It's uh, you know, uh, and of course he's he's killing Jared Leto, so that makes you happy. Yeah, that makes you helps. happy. Morbius is just you know done for. Um, Morbius and Batman. Batman wins both the acts. Anyway, um, uh, I would have to say, uh, for me the the. I know, like you, like you just said, Matt, the whole soundtrack to Maximum Overdrive. I know that there's a lot of movies that I'm not thinking of right now. Like there's whole soundtracks, like the Trick or Treat from 1986. There's a lot of whole soundtracks here. Um, but if we're going off of like a scene with a song in it, it's the after credit sequence of uh, Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead remake from 2004, where you think that they made it, 
and then you realize that the woods are infested with the zombies. The camera falls Blair Witch style, and down with the sickness by Disturbed kicks on. Yeah, that that was just like, oh damn! Like that's how you end a movie. So that I'm going with that. That's a good choice as well. All right, well, uh, I guess let's get to the fucking point of the episode already. Let's talk about a banquet. A Banquet is a 2021 British body horror film that premiered at the 2021 Toronto International Film Festival. It's directed by today's guest, Ruth Paxton, and written by Justin Bull. The film stars Sienna Gilroy as a widowed mother, Holly, whose husband was a famous jazz musician. I think of, uh, what was it, Ron Burgundy? The jazz flute? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she has two daughters, Betsy, played by Jessica Alexander, and Isabel, played by Ruby Stokes. Their father died by suicide, and one night Betsy has what she believes to be a supernatural experience uh, that results in her refusing to eat. And uh, one night at a party, she's just on a hot drug binge. <laughs> and she goes out into the woods and she has that supernatural experience. Now, uh, her mom, Holly, he, she's a bit controlling. I she, like how you put that. She just has that supernatural experience. <laughs> I mean, that's, she had an experience, dog. <laughs> she was touched by an angel. I don't think it was an angel. <laughs> anyway, her mom, Holly, is a bit controlling, to say the least. Uh, she's constantly trying to force Betsy to eat, and uh, she isn't appreciating or buying that apocalypse talk. <laughs> and uh, she says Betsy says that not eating doesn't hurt her, and she has been chosen. Her mom, like that scene with the peas, mm -hmm. dude, and like, uh, yeah, like I said, this is a body horror. Yet, like, it's a lot of auditory horror as well, like. Yeah, just definitely. those sounds just like are unsettling like everything's just designed to make you feel like very unsettled and uh this is truly a slow burn film uh we're both fans of it oh yeah but uh like if you didn't like a movie like house of the devil because it was too slow uh this might not be a film that you'll like uh i do like uh that the ending was not spoon fed to us it's just uh it's a lot of uh Heavy emotions in the film. Yeah, definitely. And a lot, a lot of different topics it deals with. Uh, for me, uh, the directing and acting, I think, are what really make this film. And again, those noises, like I said, uh, there's like scraping noises. And I yeah. just like, uh, I can't stand those sounds. Um, I think the script by uh, Justin could have been maybe a little stronger. But I'd still give this film like an 8.1 out of 10. Well, uh, yeah, um... Ruth Paxton only directed short films up until this point. You know, she had some success um, with her short films. Uh, her short film, uh, Paris Sexy, and uh, her short film, Be Still My Beating Heart, which is a fucking fantastic title, by the way. They were both critically acclaimed. And uh, so she took the next step in her evolution as a director and did her first feature-length film, which is A Banquet. And um, like, you know, you said Justin Bull, who who penned the script, uh, he's a writer. He wrote the uh, upcoming uh, Little Rituals as well as uh, as well as the short Night Night Lily, which he directed as well. And uh, 
Sienna Gilroy, uh, she's known for her role as Jill Valentine to genre fans uh, from the Resident Evil series. She's a talented actress for sure. She's been in so much. She's in the upcoming Meg too. You were a fan of the Meg. Um, yeah, sorry. And uh, that's set to come out next August. Um, I, don't I honestly really... did not know they were doing a second one. Yeah, well, you know, uh, but but I didn't. Uh, I, I have never seen anything that Jessica Alexander or uh, Ruby Stokes had done outside of this movie. Um, but they did, they did great jobs. I think that you know, all the acting is incredible. And that, like you said, that helps the overall feel of the movie. It helps, it impacts the viewer because it's believable due to those, due to those performances. Now my rating of the movie, um, it's a deep movie that moves you, you know, to feel something, even if you don't believe Betsy, that's my opinion. Anyway, the acting is well done. As I'll say again, the apocalypse is happening. Uh, you don't think she no. was chosen? No, I don't know. Um, I could I could see that point of view. That would be cool to believe that, but I just you know, no, that's I'm too much of a of a nihilist to believe something like that. You know, yeah, and to, I don't think she gives a good enough explanation. <laughs> she lying. Uh, well, the acting is well done, as we said, but uh, the pee scene that you had brought up that's my favorite scene because that scene is a pivotal scene because it shows you how desperately Holly is struggling for control and normalcy it's not that she's trying to be a bitch you know holly lives in denial the whole movie she's very strict she won't let betsy travel for schools for school she has to keep her family close you know and it's like that it's just she's struggling for normalcy so much that she's like on the breaking point and that's that leads me into my second favorite scene which is where they're at the rank the ice rank and uh holly is talking to her friend about betsy going to school and says uh something along the lines of uh i can't help but wonder what's it all for and she's talking about like life because she's depressed like thinking about you know just ending it all and just being sad and her friend thinks that they're still talking about school and starts talking about scholarships thinking that like she's talking about what's it all for meaning like what's school all for and she starts getting all ag- uh, academic about it and that scene shows you how holly f- feels and, and how like no one understands her and that is depression feeling alone um the acting by sienna gilroy is, is stellar um like I just said, the whole cast does a good job. You rate your movies differently than me. We've gone over this before. You do that point one, <laughs> point two. I just rate in point fives. I don't do. Uh, if I did, I would give You're amateur I would, score, dog. <laughs> uh, I don't even remember what I rate. I'm half about the time. to just fucking go back to four stars and keep it simple. But I um, thought about that as well. But uh, no, uh, eight point one is fair if you rate it like that. Um, you know, I I don't. I do eight. I do point fives, uh, halves at a time. So I give it an eight out of 10 just because i don't do it but if i did you know i would be like a if i did your rating i'd do eight one eight two but yeah eight eight out of ten for me um yeah and uh this is one of those movies that really divides people due to its style of uh slow burn and and being ambiguous you know uh christy lemire from RogerEbert.com wrote director ruth paxton puts you on edge from beginning from the beginning in a banquet and holds that unsettling mood throughout because the sound design is so vivid and paxton's eye for disturbing detail is so creative it's even more frustrating that the payoff is so unsatisfying that's a negative review that i've then you said that you've also read some mixed reviews as well correct yeah but i feel like it's just a lot of people not understanding what the movie's about exactly that's that's why i'm bringing it up exactly like like, like that one right there like we talked about the ending is supposed to be ambiguous exactly there's not supposed to be closure right that's what i'm saying that's why these types of movies get these types of reviews because people just don't understand the way to read them that's just the truth of it and uh but but here's a more favorable this i agree with this one this is from peter bradshaw and he wrote uh is Betsy a vampiric demon? 
secretly consuming her family's psychic happiness to keep her own weight up. I liked that theory, by the way. Or is there another more rational explanation connected with Holly's relationship with food and with her mother? Paxton's movie sketches out the sinister dread just under the happy family surface. She is in expert control of her film, achieving her effects with economy and force. It really is unnerving, end quote. I agree with that completely. Yeah, I, there was something I, I meant to bring up and when you were talking about, you know, her mother's just trying to keep everything together. That's part of the problem is she's trying to control everything. Like, she's just trying to make her kid eat, yeah. but she doesn't really ever, like, sit down and be like, what's wrong? It's or like, like she's or trying like, to live in denial, like, kind of You're, you're just it. saying that it's this apocalypse, but she doesn't, like, really try to really get to the root that's a good very good point she she's, just thinks she's like mentally ill it's and more just takes her to doctors right yeah that's i never really thought of that. that's a really good perspective like and i'm sure that there's some some water to that it's uh she she's more concerned with like oh no this isn't happening it's let's more be normal about control. it's more about let's be normal let's uh let's be but normal she's not this doing isn't it happening to be mean with the control to, she's just yeah. trying to keep everything together but she's trying to do her it husband just control. killed himself she can't deal with the fact that her daughter might be going through some shit like this so yeah. it's just let's get back to normal this isn't happening but you can't ignore that shit um but no, I, I like metaphors and body horror, and I like uh, movies that make you think. And quite frankly, this is a movie that makes you think. It makes you ponder. Like after the movie ended, I sat there and thought for a few minutes what my theories were, if I believed it or not. And uh, I, yeah, I, I, I like this movie. I like movies that make you think. You know, uh, it's not a feel-good Marvel movie. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but just like I said, this has that midsummer type of feel to it where you almost don't know how you should feel once it ends and i like that i like that it's not it's like you said spoon fed to you yeah all right well i think that'll about uh do it for talking about a banquet now let's uh get the director on herself and let's talk to ruth paxton our guest today is our first guest from the uk She's a writer and director, and she's here to talk with us about her film, A Banquet, starring Sienna Gilroy, Jessica Alexander, and uh, Ruby Stokes, now streaming on Shudder. Welcome, Ruth Paxton. Thank you for being on High on Horror. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we'll start the, I wanted to start off with, you know, uh, we're a show about, you know, cannabis and horror. So I just wanted to know, uh, do you consume? Do you partake in the devil's lettuce? I don't, but not... <laughs> for any kind of judgment what i i never as a young person i would have loved to have gotten more into it but it didn't agree with me i used to whitey all the time my brother <laughs> smoked so much that the house was filled with um a thick smoke so i feel like i got secondhand high a lot of the time but i do use <laughs> cbd oil now so i like that okay. but no i haven't it's never, I, I wish that it agreed with me more, you know, because I could definitely get into it, <laughs> but um, not not day to day, no. <laughs> okay, well, um, what about uh, edibles? Do you do edibles? I have done in the past, and I haven't recently, but I would do. That's a good point. Um, so, uh, okay, well, uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, how and why did you get into filmmaking? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it's not like a straight story, is it? I'm, I mean, I came, I suppose, from a family that watched a lot of films. And I think that at the time I thought it was normal, but in retrospect, I can see that we watched a lot of films um, and we were constantly at the cinema. And so it was just a big part of 
how I related to my family and my friends um, was watching movies. And so that was the, the love of movies was there from, from, from very young. And then I guess I knew I was going to be creative in some way. I was, you know, I was artistic. I was very creative at school, both like making um, drawings and paintings, but also in, in writing and creative writing. And I think I kind of talk about when I saw Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice, like the work of Tim Burton, basically that, that sort of 80s, 90s work as being the point where I recognised a director having a voice and being singular. And I think that was when I started to think, ooh, I think I want to make films and I think I want to make my kind of films. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a bit of a mishmash because I did go to art school. I did film there, but I also, you know, it, it wasn't... Um, a very practical film course. It was definitely, you know, more kind of self-led stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I kind of joke, I kind of always say that I've been a storyteller since I was a kid. I needed to be at the centre of things and understand, you know, what was going on with people and why people did what they did. And I will be, I was even out the other night for a drink with my, my partner and there was a table behind us where a family were having a fight and I just couldn't, keep my eyes off I just that was the, the evening for me was just trying to work out what was going on with these people so I've been like that since I was a kid really <laughs> <laughs> so uh so that's great that so uh making movies kind of happened like organically for you there wasn't really a path that you paved for yourself there would you say that there are any influences you have like film wise like did uh, David Cronenberg have any like you know John Carpenter or anybody like that anybody from the horror genre or not horror genre maybe impact you both. I mean, you know, horror-wise, of course, Cronenberg. Um, and particularly, I mean, actually, it's a strange one, but Crash was a big movie for me when I was young. I saw it probably way earlier than I should have. <laughs> and I, I, it had a very profound impact on me, that movie. So so that, um, that film, for sure. But I also, you know, I mean, I suppose, I'm not going to remember the director's names, but like, I suppose the the films of like um, like Leprechaun and Troll and these kind of I don't know if they're eighties nineties horrors I can't like Pet Cemetery that kind of Stephen King era of horror was what I grew totally. up on as a teenager for sure and then I think what I realised recently was was that I maybe had discounted for a while but I think probably the most meaningful horror films I saw and watched over and over again were the Alien series. Um, I don't know if I would have thought of those as a horror film before, but I was thinking recently, uh, as I was talking a bit about body horror and stuff, how really they are. And um, yeah, so again, my brother and I, big, big movie fans and, you know, consumed a lot of R-rated stuff when we were very young. Definitely, I think we could put on a play of Alien or Predator for you if you wanted. <laughs> um, we watched it so many times. <laughs> but nowadays, I mean, for me, biggest influence for on a banquet and, and on so much of the work that I write and want to make is The Shining. It's probably my favourite horror, probably. I don't like to commit to things, but that I love. Um, and then, you know, I think probably slightly more maybe art house horror, like things done by Gaspar Noe, Lars von Trier. So they're not marketed necessarily as horror films, but for me, I think they're pretty fucking horrific um, films to watch and, and to experience. They're sort of physical films. Right. Well, horror, you know, uh, attracts different people for different reasons. And you just said, you know, that you like art. So it makes sense. You know, art house type of horror would be the type of horror that would attract you. Everything, you know, different strokes for different folks. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I wanted to ask you while we're here, uh, before we move on, 
Alien or Aliens? You can't bring up Alien, the Alien series. And aliens. Not, and, okay. Okay. Yes. John, what do you think? I'm, 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 aliens. I'm, I'm Alien. You're Alien? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, we always have this debate alien. between Aliens and Aliens. So, I got one on my side. <laughs> aliens definitely saw more, more, more times. But actually, and this is maybe a bit controversial, I'm a huge fan of Alien Resurrection by Jean-Pierre Jeunet. I think, I mean, it's obviously a very different take, but it's properly body horror. I love it. I think it's, I think, you know, Sigourney Weaver's role in that film and the relationship with Winona Ryder, I think, you know, for me, it's one of my favorites as well. You know, I'm not a big fan of that film, but I, I think that uh, it's one of those things kind of for like Rob I, Zombie's Halloween for me, where like if it wasn't supposed to be Halloween, I'd like it. So I feel like if it wasn't like the fourth Alien movie and just like a monster movie in space, I probably would like Resurrection more. But yeah. I just always kind of compare it to its predecessors and it's going to always kind of fall short, you know, when, when you do that. But um, yeah, I get so that. Um, yeah, I get that. Well, um, into you, uh, your career here. Uh, you directed short films until a banquet, and I wanted to know why did you decide to make the yes. horror picture, uh, like the horror movie? Or it's kind of it's you can argue if it's horror or not. That's kind of debatable. But um, why did you decide to make this your first feature length film? Of all the things you've done, what made you say, "Hey, this is the one I want to make a full movie of"? I think that there's a very honest answer to that, which is it was the one I was allowed to do, you know, it was, it became possible to make that film and why wouldn't I do that? You know, it's such, it's such a tough industry that we work in that, you know, if you get any kind of opportunity, you're kind of stupid not to grab it. I think that, you know, my work, my short films have always been programmed in horror, horror programs or more abstract programs because they don't, quite sit neatly in a category. They're usually films that explore um, the darker parts of our psychology. And so they fit into what we would call psychological horror or thriller or whatever. Um, and that's the kind of horror I probably do like very best of all. But I suppose I didn't always see myself as being a director of horror. I just was telling stories about stuff I thought was really fucking important or really scary. And I'm a person who's got um, like, quite severe mental health issues, which I'm medicated for, but at times haven't been. And for me, that's the scariest experience of my life, you know, is, is kind of the prospect of losing my shit. So that's kind of what I try to channel into, into the work I make. But a banquet came about because I was having a meeting with a producer about projects I might want to work on. And normally I'm a writer of what I do. Um, but she told me about this script by Justin Bull. He's an American writing in um, Boston. And it sounded amazing. It sounded like something I could have written. And it had it ticked so many boxes. And I read it and I read it really quickly. And I fucking loved it. And I saw a way to make it my kind of a horror film. <laughs> I think there's definitely a version of it that would please a really hungry horror audience in a different way. I think, you know, there was a way to make a more commercial film with this, but my route into it was to, to go, I suppose, more under the surface and to be more, I don't know, tuned into the horror at the heart of the family's disintegration. That was where I thought I could flex my muscles. And, you know, I think that it's, it's definitely, I mean, I'm totally conscious that for some people it's 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 really hit or miss basically you know especially for hardcore horror fans it's like there's people watching it who are like that was boring basically and i get that i think it you know if you're going in and expecting something 
you know, um, with lots of jump scares and lots of gore and, and you know, terror, I think, you, you know, you will be disappointed because it's basically just people talking. But for me, what I was trying to harness was that sense of anxiety and dread that is present in something like The Shining, something that's really just foreboding and terrifying, like, you know, the prospect of. Um, so, yeah, so I suppose that's that's kind of the, the the reason why I did it. But also, I mean, yeah, the practical reason why I did it is because I think the industry in the UK works quite differently to America. And it's, you come up through government funded sources of, of, of financing. And, you know, it's it's not so easy to get independent films off the ground any other way. And if, if you can, you know, if something can, you know, comes to fruition, as I said before, it would be really dumb not to, not to do it. Um, but it's been an interesting experience because I think as a first time feature maker, because the film was put out there as kind of balls out horror, it's been critiqued in a way that I think is different to a lot of my contemporaries who are making horror as a first time, who are making first term time features kind of get, you know, they kind of get, um, I suppose, critiqued on a, you know, under the under the umbrella of being that first time feature. And I'm not sure that everybody that would watch this film would know it was a first time feature just because it's, you know, because it's not necessarily marketed as a Ruth Paxson film or whatever. Like, and that's kind of how they would do it in the UK. But that's just my theory. I don't, you know, it, it doesn't mean I'm right. And what, and what attracted you to the horror genre? And I have to say, I'm a big Shining fan too. That was one of the movies that really got me into horror. So I definitely, I definitely feel your love of the Shining. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also a film that I can watch again and again and again and find new things to enjoy about it. And I love the, is it 237, the documentary, Room 237? Yes. Yeah, yep. yep. I think I, I often get the number wrong. But yeah, I love that. You know, I love all the kind of lore around it as well, even though I don't think he was very nice to work for in Cubic. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. It was a different time. Um but I think, you know, the, the horror genre for me, like I've always, I like watching all kinds of films. I really do. I particularly like watching, um, you know, certain kinds of sub, sub-genre in horror. Like my brother, for example, fucking, like he's a huge horror aficionado. He's a filmmaker as well. And he loves zombie movies and he loves John Carter and, you know, The Thing and all those kind of, you know, classics. And they weren't maybe the ones that did it so much for me. I think, you know, I'm probably more less less monster driven although having said that i love a creature feature and i think you know right. i had a discussion with somebody the other day about how jaws is a horror and you know that would be the film probably as a kid that scared the shit out of me the most and made me not want to go in the sea in scotland you know really convinced there could be a great white in there so you know i think <laughs> it's it's really quite a flexible term and that's what i love about horror is that there is you know there are so many facets to it as a genre um, and I think maybe that's something that draws me to it is just that there's, you know, my film, I think, you know, the, the, the overall tag or whatever that, you know, marketing folk like to give it is that it's a psychological horror. But there's definitely elements of biological horror and body horror and gore in there horror, as well yeah. as, you know, yeah, as well, you know, as well as other sort of maybe slightly more, I don't know, you know, tropes from you know maybe teen horror flicks that kind of thing so i think it's nice that you can that you can play with with those with all the tropes yeah definitely and uh yeah it's 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 really interesting hearing your journey on how the banquet came about and how you uh 
were using it to just kind of like purge like this horror that you wanted to i guess get out if that's the way to put it and uh i just you know um you had you know sienna gilroy uh, jessica alexander and ruby stokes the how was it directing a cast like that where was it intimidating you know having like really credible actors on set like that like for a first feature or did you handle it like a pro i would like i you know because a, a lot of what i deal with is anxiety I, my kind of um my you know res my kind of go-to is that I, you know i'm not good enough to do something or i'm scared of doing something but actually i'm not frightened of working with actors it's the one thing i'm quite confident about and so i was i, I you know I cast people that were nice people. I like to do that, you know? It sounds like a stupid thing, but I'll cast people that are nice people that I want to work with, that I want to spend this time with. And so, you know, it's not to say that you don't have clashes of opinion at times, but there's never any discomfort. And I think, you know, I have to, as a director, just be, believe and behave as though I'm an equal to these people. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, they're not going to respect mm -hmm. me. So I think, you know, that wasn't a fear. Maybe having Lindsay Duncan on set, who plays Granny, was a wee bit intimidating just because I love her so fucking much, you know? And it was like, it was a big, a big surprise that she wanted to do it. And it was just, I think everybody was very much in awe of her when she was around. And I would say she's one of the loveliest people I've ever met. So there's no need to be nervous of her. But um, I think I kind of rem learned a while ago that like, you just got to remember that everybody is human. Sounds really cheesy but like you know everybody's scared essentially you know most of the time and if you rec if you recognize that and you're just nice to people and you're just honest about where your strengths and weaknesses are as a filmmaker i think you can get by for me what's more intimidating is working is the technical side of things and working with crew i'm not a technical director so i don't you know have a need to look through the lens and you know have a an opinion about the lighting or, or you know in the way that a lot of directors do i have a very very collaborative relationship with my director of photography but we mostly talk about feelings and how to put feelings on screen or how to create a, an atmosphere on screen rather than talking about what what equipment we're going to use or how we're going to technically achieve it so that always is a bit dominant um dominate what's the word I've lost my word dominant. you know in intimidating yeah Exactly. For me, you know, it's um, I had to get my head around how we would work with practical effects and SFX. I'd never really done that before. Um, so that kind of part of it is and, and yeah, just how you would put together shots that were going to be um, constructed in post, really, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I'm getting there. I'll, I'll continue to learn. I think all directors just are constantly learning. But um, the, I have to say the actors weren't the actors were a pleasure. Um, and the only thing that was maybe slightly scary about working with them was that I hadn't met the majority of them before they came to set because we cast during COVID. And so it was all remote auditions, all remote tapes and callbacks. And Sienna was the only actor that I met prior to lockdown. And after that, it was just guessing digitally if we would all get on, really. And uh, as you said, this was the first time you've directed somebody else's script. Uh, and I'd read that she said it was really rewarding and it forced you to analyze someone else's writing. Uh, do you still prefer writing your own stuff or do you like directing other people's stuff? Both. So you're absolutely right. Justin taught me a lot. He's a very prolific writer. He's also much stronger on sort of 
structure and form than I am. So, you know, I really I definitely got like a schooling from from going through his work and work and collaborating with him. Um, but at the same time, I needed to get my fingers into it at some point because that's just my nature is to want to go, well, I'm going to direct this. So I have to make it my way. And if, you know, after a point, we weren't necessarily getting it to where I wanted it to be, it was like I was desperate to, to do my own drafts on it. Um, and I think that that will always be the case. But I, you know, basically I'm a really slow writer and it's something that I've felt shit about in the past because I'm, I can just see, you know, my brother's a writer, so many of my friends are filmmakers. I, I can literally see how fast they're working compared with me. And it takes a lot. I find it like, I suppose going back to that, that, that self-doubt that I've spoken about before, it's like sitting down and, you know, making something out of nothing is quite challenging in itself, but especially when there's a part of you that thinks, is it actually any fucking good? I don't know. So I know that's that's similar for most writers, but it's it, for me, I just find it quite a physical task having to write. So I definitely would see my future as being a balance of writing because I so love, you know, I love when I've written something I think is good, um, but also in directing other people's writing. And I think that's changed. You know, I think ego-wise, when I was younger, I would have not wanted to direct other people's writing. And I think that's partly because I was schooled to think, you know, that I wanted to be an auteur. And I don't, well, I think that's, I think that's fine if that's what you want to be, but I think it's a hard way to earn a living. So it's like, you know, you want to be able to do it all. And, and I think, yeah, I think that's, that's another reason why I, it's good for me to be across things as a director and writer director is just because if I was only writing my own material I think I would make films every fucking five years or something like that I don't know yeah um I definitely understand where you're coming from when you're talking about um your self-doubt and uh you know I pretty much I have the same exact type of thing I'm, I'm learning to be a machine operator at my job right now and it's like all this shit's in front of me that I'm supposed to learn I'm doubting myself along the way so I understand where you're what you're going through and how you feel but you got to push yourself you got to just you know that's just it's literally all in your head that's what I have to tell myself. You just yeah, push forward. exactly. So, you know, so stay busy, keep it up. You know, like we definitely want to see more movies from you. That's for sure. And, um, well, I've said this in past episodes and, uh, and, and I, I mean this, um, like that usually when a man writes female characters and their dialogue, you can tell that it's written by a guy. Like I was raised by my mom and sister. So like I was raised by women and it, like, it's kind of like nails on a chalkboard when I hear women talking in a movie and I'm like, it's just not how girls talk, you know, even when they're in the bathroom putting their makeup on. However, uh, your movie comes off genuine. So I just wanted to know, did anybody like, did anybody change their lines or did you follow the script written by Justin? Exactly. Like was his dialogue just that on point? Um, well, I suppose I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from Justin because I think his, you know, rendering of the female characters mm -hmm. was, was great to begin with, but I did write the latter passes. So I did write the dialogue and I wrote, you know, um, I suppose what, what you hear. I mean, for me, I'm very fluid on set with how I like to work. So when we do a line reading, if what I've written doesn't sound right, I'm very keen for us to find what does. You know, I don't force, the only time I might force a line is if it was 
just crucial to get a particular piece of information across or something. And I've worked in TV where, you know, you can't change a line without phoning five fucking executives before they'll say yes. So there is something really liberating about being on set and, you know, an actor going, it just doesn't sound right. And if it doesn't sound right, they won't deliver it well. It won't come over as truthful. So we're always reshaping the dialogue as we're going. But I did, you know, I did the dialogue um, partly because I really like writing dialogue, but also um, because the film was relocated from America to the UK. So when it came to me, it was set in Concord and we pitched for it with the intention to shoot there. But with the budget demands, um, we thought that it made more sense to shoot it in the UK, basically, and to relocate it. So that was something that, you know, Justin could only, uh, you know, do to an extent because he doesn't live there, you know what I mean? So so I kind of had more of a, I suppose, a cultural impression. Like, there would definitely be a couple of passes I did that were more about giving it a sensibility for for the UK and, you know, for the family that then became quite a different family unit to who had been the family unit in America, which was a more middle-class McMansion, um, you know, super white, super um, privileged, you know, family. And that's not to say that's, that that's not reflected in the banquet that you see now, but it's just the same kind of family didn't quite translate here. So that's, that's how Holly's family came to be. And uh, what, what was it that attracted you to the project? Well, I think that probably there was a scene. Uh, the, the truth is there was a scene that just blew my mind, and it's the one where she won't eat her dinner. She won't eat the peas. And I just knew I could make – I knew I could shoot the shit out of that scene and make it really powerful. And I was just so drawn to, like, the power dynamic of what was going on there and with the younger sister as the bystander and just I knew I could make that feel toxic. Um, so that was that was one of the reasons. I loved the what was going on between the sort of intergenerational relationships between the women and the role of mother and daughter. I think that I could in some ways relate to what was going on. Um, <laughs> I always say that and then I have to tell my mum, I've done this podcast that makes it sound like I'm slagging you <laughs> off, but I'm not. You know, it's like we all have complicated relationships with our mums, I think. Oh, and um, I, it's true, you know, it's all their fault. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I mean, I too had, you know, I hadn't gone through a period of disordered eating. I think I think majority of women do have difficulty with with food and the relationships to their body, but not everybody um, has a kind of mental illness around it. And I definitely did. I, I sort of stopped eating for two years, lost a massive amount of weight, and it was all a kind of byproduct of the anxiety that was going untreated at the time. But what was really really uh, impactful to me was how Justin had drawn. Yeah, the ripple effect of what not eating did to the family. And I I knew that. I, I, I had seen that. I had seen it tear my family up and, you know, having inter staged interventions about why I wouldn't eat and all that shit. So, you know, that side of it was very, very familiar. Um, and then I think the other thing is that for me, when I was a kid, one of the things that scared me the most was not being believed. The idea that somebody wouldn't believe me. Um, mm. And I think there was a period where... I wouldn't, there was a, a weird period I had where I wouldn't go to school and my parents didn't 
couldn't get out of me why. And I don't really know if I could tell you why, but I didn't want to go. And I used to say I had a sore tummy. And it resulted in loads of visits to doctors and, you know, the hospital. And there was nothing wrong with my stomach. But I obviously had some form of anxiety that felt like there was something wrong with my stomach. And I understood the beginnings of what it was to not be believed, like I was making it up. And that scared the fucking crap out of me. The idea that like you could you could literally get lost inside your own mind. And so for me, you know, Betsy's belief, whether, you know, it's true or not, is kind of irrelevant in a way. But the idea that, you know, she that you could be disbelieved when you believe so strongly in something is really compelling. And I think, you know, it's something that's almost too big for the film and you know, is something I would maybe continue to kind of noodle on in other films. But um, yeah, I think I'm not religious, so I couldn't I couldn't relate to like you know God or you know something I, I, even spiritual. You know, I mean, I like to think you know the universe is a thing or whatever, but I don't honestly believe in like putting shit out there and getting it back. I I, I suppose I believe in being nice and kind and that kind of thing, but I'm not sure we can affect things that way. But I have had that experience of being so, so doggedly committed to something, as in not eating, that um, the fear that something bad would happen if I did. And that's that's what anorexia is. And that's what, um, that's, you know, what Betsy's experiencing, whether it's a spiritual or a, or a physical thing, is, is, you know, not what the film's there to say. So, sorry, that's a long-winded answer, but... Um, I don't even remember what you asked me, but you got loads of loads of uh, words there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a yeah, that was a, a very good answer. Um, and, and the fact that it was uh, John asked that question, that was a very good question because it actually does your answer kind of makes it you know you related to the to the material, and that's why you were drawn to doing it, and that's why it came out so well. Um, so uh, as you were just talking about, though, this is a serious movie, you know, like you were just saying, like uh, heavy with emotion, themes of grief, suicide, anorexia, angst, even divine intervention. I know you're not religious, but that could be an arguable point, divine intervention. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what was it like on set? You know, like was was it all fun and games when the camera wasn't rolling or was it very serious because the film is serious? It was it was a little bit of both. I mean, I think what was more predominant for us during filming was having to cater to um, COVID restrictions and, and that being brand new. So we were one of the first productions to to, to go after the second lockdown in, in the UK. And it meant that, you know, I was making a film in a way that I'd never made one before, like with all this distancing and, you know, protective measures and masks and, you know, so, so all of that was kind of more dominant in a way. It wasn't dour on set, absolutely not. But I do like to kind of have, when I'm making work, I do kind of, you know, you set, the, I think as the director, you set the tone on set and mine is, you know, generally like calm. That's what I would say. So it's not, it's not that it's like, like weighted with like oh, we mustn't talk but there is a, i do like a state of calm because because i don't like to be stressed basically and you know i, I think films sit yeah i just i can't work that way so you know and you have to just keep some some sets you're on it's it's almost like you're saving the world the way people deal with it and it's you're not you're making a film that some people might like some people might not it's not that big a deal and you've got to respect the money that's going into it and the efforts of everybody which of course i inherently do but it's a film it's you know and everybody's 
health is much more important than that. And so for me, the CAM is just because I think you make better work that way. But so, yeah, I wouldn't want loads of people giggling in the corner or whatever, but I kind of just trust the people around me to know when it's okay to have, you know, to, to let go a bit. And then other times when it's, when it's not. And a lot of that, it, you know, happens because they'll take their cue from you. So, you know, I mean, I'm also crazy introverted. So for me, being on set is quite hard work just because it's people and I'm really hermit. I understand. So, um, so I would be, you know, on lunch breaks, I'm, I'm having lunch by myself because I just need time to, to recharge. It's, it's not about not, not loving the people I work with because I work with some of my best friends who I love. It's just that I need, I literally need that time to recharge. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, I think it, it wasn't as intense as you might think it could have been because of the content. No, it really wasn't. It was pretty loving and relaxed and chill. Okay. Well, uh, it's, it's funny though. Uh, you just cracked me up with what you said though, because I literally eat my lunch in my car every day. I like everybody eats in the cafeteria. I go out <laughs> to my car. I, I walk five minutes through the parking lot just to sit in my car and lose time on my lunch just so I can eat away from people. So I definitely understand where you're coming from with being an introvert. And it's not, it. and like you said, it's not, it's not to be rude, but it's like, you know, I just, I'm around no. you guys for 11 hours a day. I just you know, let me, I, I need 30 minutes alone. You know, that's all it is, you know, yeah. even if I'm sleeping, exactly. watching TV, whatever. And I, I couldn't do, the other thing I couldn't do was like on the weekends, I couldn't hang out with people. I mean, there was, there was slightly, the reason for that was because, you know, we, we were asking the crew not to socialize because obviously at that time, you know, COVID was still rife. I mean, it is still rife, don't get me wrong, but like we couldn't afford to ask our crew to quarantine it just wasn't possible. So all we could do is ask, like, please, can you be careful at the weekend and not get COVID and bring it to set? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but I, even even if we could, we'd had more freedom, I just spent Saturday, Sunday, like, lying on a fucking couch, like, you know, re revving up for the, for the week that was coming, you know? Because, um, yeah, I'm not that social. So I was doing more socialising on this film than I would do in a year. <laughs> But um, but no, it was great. And the thing is, is that like I worked with people that understood that about me, and the producer that I worked with understood that very well about me. So I didn't feel like a weirdo, and I didn't feel like I was being rude or anything like that. I think you know that was all very well handled. But that comes from years of getting to know yourself. Like I couldn't have been as confident in sticking to my guns ten years ago. That wouldn't have been. You know, that wouldn't have been possible. So, yeah, I think now I'm much better at saying this is right. what I need in order to do a good job um, and not be embarrassed about it. Yeah, exactly. Part of part of handling it is knowing what you need to control it. Um, so did you or any actors get emotional while you were filming any scenes, like maybe even towards the end? Yes. I feel like this might be a movie where, you know, once once you guys hit cut, it, uh, you know, there might have been some tears shed. Definitely. I mean, I'm very, I am very highly emotional. So I, every film I have ever made, I cry on, even if it's not sad. You know, I'm like, I just get really overwhelmed with like what people give, you know? And I think that's, that's what I felt particularly of Sienna and in her very obvious, you know, very emotional scene at the end. Like just what she gave to it was, you know, I was so grateful to that, you know, for her. Um, because she was like physically overall and the same with jessica jessica went like i think you know this was the 
this at the time this was her first feature. She's since made quite a few, but at the time this was, and she did things that she maybe will learn. I don't know. She gave me gifts that she maybe won't give as readily as as her career goes on. You know, she really threw her body into it. She really, you know, screamed. She gave, you know, she kind of gave herself bruises. She threw herself around, you know, which, you know, I couldn't ask of her, but I certainly wasn't going to say, I wasn't going to turn down, let's say. (laughs) If you want to bleed for me, that's cool, but I'm not asking you to. So, um, yeah, she, she, you know, she and Sienna were just incredibly... Yeah, like generous with their bodies, basically. So I think, you know, the scene, this, there was the scene where um, at the end, I suppose the, the sort of culminating of the film, that that was, actually, I didn't cry at that. I was just really highly strung, I remember, because you just knew with, with that, you can't ask Sienna to do that over and over again. It's just not possible to give that level like over and over again it's just going to decrease so i remember being really stressed knowing i maybe had like two three takes of it um and i I think i kind of had a headache from being tense i think there was scenes i think the scene where they're in the bed and they're thrashing around in the bed i was quite emotional just because jessica was so yeah, she just went above and beyond with it. You know, I think people in the room were actually quite frightened by what she was doing, which was excellent, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't have a clear memory of crying, but I will have done, because as I say, I cry quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and and you had said uh, very much that this is a body horror type of movie. Um, were there any influences from that from those types of movies that you took directly? And I have to say, those scraping sounds in the movie were so unsettling. That's for good. Me. I mean, I think, you know, that would be something, I, I don't know what you guys think, but for me, a lot, I think what's paramount with horror is sound. I think it's the sound that's scary, really, you know, most of the time, or that, that really lands mm. the punch. And I mean, well, for for example, like, the, the body horror, I mean, it's interesting, because I just spoke on a panel about body horror, and it kind of occurred to me that, like, in many ways, there isn't, the body horror in my film is really all about the food and therefore is it body horror or is it more biological horror obviously we're talking about Betsy's body as a vessel so there's a there's something to talk about when it comes to the horror of what she's doing to her body but in a way it's um yeah it's more about the sort of grotesqueness of food and 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 uh, you know the 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 quality of food is something that lives and dies that's that's something i was interested in i mean when it comes to the futakuchi on us, so the mouth, for that, I was, um, that is Japanese folklore. That's something that Justin knew about and wrote into the script. But originally it was described as much more demonic and there was kind of eyes involved and it was a horizontal mouth. And I knew that I wanted to try and do something very different and that I wanted it to be more like tumorous and like it was of Betsy, that it was, you know, rather than being... Um, monster stuck onto her it was like a part of her um and so i was looking at lots of like medical imagery for that and and you know like really really gross disgusting stuff that would that you can't not look at but is gross to look at and that's something i do that's that's something i I have a problem with um and so a lot of i don't know if you know chris cunningham's videos he he did a lot of apex twins videos um and he made a, a really weird video called rubber johnny it probably 
in the 2000s. Anyway, that was a strong influence and in, uh, Suspiria was a really strong, actually the new one with um, Luca Guadagnino with, with the, you know, the dancing scene uh, where, you know, her body snaps, basically. All that stuff was, was, was strong references. And then actually Alien Resurrection was, was a really big, that's in all my imagery for this film, just more because of the, I suppose, the, the failed clones and, and that kind of thing. That was the, point of reference for the Futakuchi. Um, and I'm trying to think there will be other references in there that that would be horror references. But I guess it's, I mean, I don't know, can't think of anything. You know, I mean, I was, you know, in, in pitching it, I was definitely talking about, you know, Ari Aster's work and Robert Eggers' work as kind of transcendental contemporary folk horror, you know. Um, and they are, they definitely are. But I think, you know, another huge influence for me would be like Antichrist, Lars von Trier. So it's a bit of a mishmash, really. Yeah, Antichrist is a good movie. I'm a huge fan of Edgar's work. Um, I wanted to say there's a lot of extreme close-ups in the movie. Was that something that was in the script or was that something that, that, that you uh, pushed for? That's a me thing, I think. That's a me and David, my cinematographer thing. We, we we always go in really close on detail and texture. And definitely when I read the script, that was how I saw it. It you know, it's an exaggerated perspective, obviously. It would it would be for me, it would link back to like maybe my experience of being you know, hi- having heightened anxiety and being really provoked by sounds or really provoked by, you know, extreme anything, extreme smells, extreme, you know tastes it was you know i think I, I remember reading i don't know what book one of these filmmaking books and somebody saying that it's you know in directing it's really smart to keep close to the five senses because you know it's something that the majority of us ha- have possession of and can relate to you know we understand this you know what the same thing smells like and tastes like and all that kind of thing Obviously, I'm being very broad, but you know what I'm, what I'm getting at. And so I think that's something I've always thought about when I make my films is like, you know, to, ha- to have a really sensory experience, not just a not just a visual one, like, you know, to try and get people to understand what things might feel like and taste like and sound like in the room, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that just goes to getting into the head of the ex- head of the character. And that's certainly what's happening for Betsy is, is, you know, when she sees that bacon, that's how she sees the bacon. That's her experience of the bacon. Oh, that's, a, that's interesting. That's a, that's very clever. Um, before, uh, I move forward with my questions about a banquet, I didn't want to interrupt you and John, but, uh, you had brought up how you said sound is very uh, like important to horror films. And I wanted to ask you, have you seen Barbarian Sound Studio? Yes, I have. So I love Peter Strickland and I love him so much that I stole his editor. So um, he um, works with, uh, you know, he's, he makes work out of Hungary and his editor is a Hungarian guy called Matthias Fichetti. And I um, hooked him in to do my last short film, Be Still My Beating Heart, which is set in a morgue. And um since then have sort of, you know, formed a connection with Peter and we're, we're recommending lots of crew to each other at the moment. But yes, I have seen that film and it's epic. And I haven't seen his new one, Flux Gourmet, but that's all about creating kind of opera out of weird sounds um, to do with food. 
So it's going to be really exciting. And Matthias edited that as well. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen that one either. Um, but uh, Barbarian Sound Studio, when you said you liked art, artsy movies and you brought up sound, I was like, that's definitely a movie that needs to get brought up because it's such a clever film. You're watching a guy uh, in the sound studio making the sound effects for a horror film, but you never see the horror film. It's just so brilliant, you know? And I'm like, I don't get to really yeah. bring that up to a lot of people. It's genius. So it's kind of perfect to bring it up now. Um, so It's... <clears throat> Yeah, you're right. It's a it's a genius example. But I would say as well, like, you know, just kind of circling back to talking about Cronenberg, like my memories of the horror um, in his films are all associated with sound. So like Crash, for example, while that's a really textural film and quite explicit in what in you know, in what the themes are to do with. Right. My memory of it are, are the sounds. Like there's a bit where they go through a car wash and it's so fucking intense. And it's the same with like Gaspar Noe's Irreversible. It's like the sound of that film is what is um, like penetrating and haunting and kind of like mesmerizing about it. Um, so I love, I, as much as, you know, as much as I love imagery um, and that's maybe my first love of cinema or whatever, I absolutely love the sound design and I love, um, being creative with that and what what good sound designers can do and, and you know propose for you i think it's yeah it's really exciting collaborative process well um in the uh, in a banquet's final moments uh they're extremely emotional and they sit with you after watching it they sat with me you know that's just one of those movies where you kind of sit there after it's over kind of contemplating and uh, uh i want to know like will you ever say your opinion on the ending of the film, how it ends ambiguously with Holly. Do you have answers in your own head or do you just not care and you're, there's no answers and you're not telling nobody? No, I definitely do. I definitely do. So I think, you know, I've got a few different opinions on this. I can tell you that when I read the script, I needed to believe that Betsy was telling the truth in order for all of that pain and misery to have been worth it. So for me, she's absolutely telling the truth. And this is the end of the world. But I like that it can be interpreted in different ways. And people have interpreted it in more different ways than I even thought possible. But I think the other thing is, is that, you know, you need, you need as a director to know, uh, this is my opinion, because there's loads of people that, that would disagree, but I think you need to know what the fuck's going on. Like, even if you don't tell your audience that, it's like, I remember doing a session with some students and um, they were doing, like, I, I do a bit of, like, associate lecturing and mentoring and stuff for the cash. And um, I learn a lot from doing it, from working with students, because you, you have to, if you're teaching, you have to be able to explain why why you think a thing, you know? Because, like, if you're just doing it, you just do it. But if somebody's like, well, why do you do that? You're like, oh, why do I do that? And you have to kind of unpack it and address it. And I remember doing a lesson with these students that were setting up a like a short film where basically a character opens a box and has a strong reaction to what's in the box, but we don't see what's in the box. You know, it's that MacGuffin or whatever. Right, right. Um, but I asked the director, but what's in the box? What's in the box? And he's like, well, we don't know. And I'm like, well, how does the actor know what to react to? And they're like, because uh, they're just, you know, they're imagining something. And it was like, I was really needling him and I was really pushing him, but, you know, even if what that actor sees in the box isn't what's actually in the box, it just gets that reaction. That's fine. But there needs to be something in the theoretically in the fucking box, you know? So for me to direct the ending of this, it needed to be that 
for Sienna, you are staring at the sky, it is opening up and you are burning and that's what you are feeling and you are totally recognising that Betsy was telling the truth and that you are this first star or whatever. Um, and I, I think you kind of need, to, I don't think you can sit on the fence with these things and get a truthful performance. Having said that, you know, um, an actor will go to wherever they need to go to make something real. So, you know, you might give a bit of direction and for them what actually works is thinking the complete opposite and it doesn't fucking matter. It's about getting the result, really. But I think, yeah, I think just like, you know, they don't know, you know, the cast don't know they're in a horror film. They don't think they're in a film. You know, they think this is life. And I think that's, you've got to make things as real and tangible for people as you possibly can. So, yeah, on a day, you can't direct with like an abstract like that I don't think but but also for me um I needed I needed the the journey that Holly goes on and the suffering to be meaningful and you know for it to be that yeah there's an apocalypse okay excellent well um that's that's great to know and to hear and uh I wanted to know um I wanted to ask you this one back in the day there used to not be a lot of females making genre pictures, you know, but now you have Jennifer Kent, who did The Babadook, Prano Bailey Bond, who did Censor, Rose Glass, who did St. Maud, Nia DaCosta, who did Candyman, and there's there's more names I could mention. Joe Gavargzian. Joe Gavargzian, yes. And uh, how does it feel to be yeah. be amongst, uh, f- direct, uh, be a female director right now in the heart of females making their mark on the industry? Well, uh, you know, I think... I'm, tr- I'm gonna get. I'm trying to gonna give a positive answer to this. I think the thing is that it feels annoying actually because it's you know like I don't think of myself as a female director. I'm a director, and it's tiresome in a way to be constantly referred to that way. I know that Prano, who's a good friend of mine, she recently did an article in Sight and Sound, which is a really famous British film magazine, and. It was like the scariest thing about working in horror is being asked what it is to be a woman in the genre. <laughs> it was just very funny. You know, it's very, and it's I'm, very truthful. I'm sorry for asking. <laughs> no, this is the thing. I don't want to be a dick about it. And I don't, I'm not getting at you. It's just, I don't actually have an answer to the question. Do you know what I mean? Not really, because I don't know what it is. I just, I suppose it's, there's, there's something great about there being a trend because it meant I got to make my movie but then it gets compared constantly to other women's movies in a way that men's men making horror wouldn't I think I think ultimately it's a good thing you know I think it is a good thing but um it I don't know I think you know I just think it's it's a sign of women being allowed tell stories and the thing about horror films is they're a really great way to tell stories on a low budget and they're a really great way to sort of Trojan horse serious subject matters into into commercial fare. And I think, you know, we all, maybe touching on what I said earlier, you know, I, I want to make good movies, but I also want to live and be able to afford to live. And that's not making like really abstract art films, unfortunately. So, you know, horror is quite a good T-junk, like cross um, junction for, you know, yeah, getting your voice and style and aesthetic in there while also appealing to, a huge audience and I think that's what I've learned in the distribution of a banquet because obviously this is my first rodeo you know I've never made a film that's had this kind of exposure before um is what I've what, what I'm kind of being impressed by is just how vast an audience for horror there is you know like and it's it's incredible I don't think there's any other genre that has as many like you know 
podcasts and enthusiasts and impassioned people, you know, um, drawn to it and, and supporting it. And that's been an amazing thing, you know. Um, but it does, it also means that your your horror film is really put out to pasture. You know, I mean, it's, it's definitely a baptism by fire, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah. And uh, the film for first debuted at uh, TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And I, I always like to ask, ask our guests, like, did you enjoy the festival? Because, like, there's so many different answers we get on, on that. But, but, but did you enjoy your experience at the film festival? Well, here's, the, I suppose the ironic answer is that I did because it was a very streamlined festival. So... It was, you know, it was, it just wasn't as eventful as it would normally be because it was the first one post-pandemic. So it was quite contained and there wasn't, like, basically there wasn't big parties and stuff that I had to bow out of all the time. Uh, I'm, I loved going to Toronto. I'd been there 10 years previously as part of the Talent Lab, so it was really sweet to go back. Um, and, you know, and I, I, lo- I, lo- I was so grateful to be in the Discovery Programme and, you know, it was it was really, really special. But actually, I had a really quite chill time there, um, not doing big festival things. I'm not a big joiner-inner. I'm not, like, I will, you know, if, if I have the great fortune of being taken to a festival, I will do the bare minimum to be, you know, thankful and grateful for the attendance. But I fucking hate networking and I'm not going to do it if I don't have to. I would much rather see the city, you know, or, or see films. Um, so I, I did enjoy it, but I, I'm conscious it was a slightly atypical premiere. Um, and having said that, though, I got to go. I got to be physically at the premiere, whereas Prano, for example, all all of, you know, her, you know, um, experience was, was done online, was virtual. And so I was really lucky to be able to attend. Did you feel any nerve showing your movie? Yeah, I did because I knew that... Well, I didn't on the night itself, particularly, because I had drunk quite a bit. So, you know, (laughs) that assuaged the nerves. But um, what was different was that, you know, IFC, who were promoting the film and distributing it, obviously, they they had generated some press in advance, but obviously it was people who liked the film. So they were saying nice things about it. The minute that it was screened, I knew that it would be open to criticism from people that didn't like it. And so I know that, you know, the night that it was premiered, we we were taken for dinner. That was quite nice. And then we went to the screening. I did actually watch it. And then did a kind of brief Q&A and then we went and had margaritas, me and my friend. Like, it was really low-key. But I went back to the hotel room and I read a review and it was one of the most scathing reviews the film had got. They were they, This person basically hated me for making this film. <laughs> and, um, and it was like, oh, fuck, I hate this. And just, I don't want to make films. It's, you know, usually with your short films, it's like you just force your friends and family to watch it and they have to say it's good. And nobody can be bothered <laughs> writing reviews about short films. But, yeah, this... This was definitely like that. I got a taste of what it was, you know, what was to come with not just the the festival premiere, but with the with the release in America, with the release in the UK, and then the online releases. And you know, I, I've learned not to look. I mean, I've had a laugh looking at some um, really awful reviews. Some are brilliantly awful that they're not even hurtful. But um, 
yeah, it's, I think, you know, that that part of it's quite hard, you know, for anybody, really. It's And, and at the same time, I recognise that, like, I'll watch, like, I watched Crimes of the Future the other night and I was bored stiff. Like, I could not get through it. But I love Cronenberg and I love, you know, and that's a huge production. So, you know, it's, it's, you're ridiculous if you don't think that there's going to be some people that love and some people that don't love. And that's kind of been the way with all my work. It's always been quite divisive. And um, I remember somebody saying to me, it's better to make a big dirty black mark than to make no mark at all. And I thought that's cool. I like that, you know, that there's, it's it's better than being oh it was okay or what was that film I can't remember you know like if you don't like it at least I've made you feel something. <laughs> Everybody remembers Troll too, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so crimes, so crimes of the future. Did you just find it like boring? Like it was moving too slow. It was too slow, and I didn't really know what was going on. And as much as I'm warming to Kirsten Stewart as an actor, I thought she was really weird in it. I thought she was really irritating. Um, I love Leia sitting on you, so I could watch her kind of read the phone book. But um, I don't know. I just thought it was a bit wanky, to be honest. Like, just a bit pretentious <laughs> and like, what? Um, I wanted to love it, you know? Um, but now I'm, I feel bad, like, saying this out loud to the world or whatever. But it's true. I didn't, doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't change my complete adoration for him. But, um, yeah, I wasn't, I wanted to love it, you know? I liked it but I wouldn't say it's anywhere near the best that Cronenberg's ever done. I'd agree. Yeah. I think, I mean, what, what actually I've thought recently about Cronenberg, because I was, as I said, I did this kind of panel on body horror and I was nervous about it. So I kind of tried to swat up on the genre and I, I was just kind of really quite, amazed by how varied his work is actually like, yeah. you know, you say Cronenberg to me, I always think Crash because it was one of my favourite films. But actually, you know, his stuff's so, yeah, so kind of varied and, and you know, like when you think about like Eastern Promises and um, History of Violence, how different those are to, I guess, what we just watched, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I still say Videodrome's my favourite Cronenberg. And Dead Ringers. I Dead Ringers. I love Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers is, I again, another one I saw really young. But Dead Ringers is also, uh, I love the production design on that film. That's what I remember about it most of all. Um, yeah. And uh, we want to thank you again for being on today to talk about a banquet. Uh, did you have any, have any upcoming projects? Well, I'm writing, so that means... <laughs> Many, many months down the line, I'll have a script. No, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm in the middle of, um, of finishing off a draft, actually. So I'm doing that. And then I'm attached to a few different projects um, that are being written by other people. And then I'm kind of actively looking for the next thing I do with the same production company. So I'm reading a lot of books. I've never done an adaptation and I'd really like to try that. So I'm kind of um, reading loads of fiction at the moment and it's really nice. Um, but I think I think probably it's going to be a bit of a dormant writing period for the forthcoming um, and sort of building up to that next project. Well, if you're writing, you always have something upcoming then. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I do. But it's not horror. That's the thing. So it's, um, it's, it's a big love story. 
but there's lots of vomiting in it and blood and um it's 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 kind of a hardcore horror story <laughs> <laughs> and uh and where and where can people keep up with you online on like social media and things like that well i'm on i'm on most things like i'm on i basically i'm on twitter instagram and facebook if anybody still uses facebook um and it's just <laughs> at ruth paxton for everything like i don't i don't have a website i've got a vimeo but it's not up to date so it's uh yeah th- th- those are the handles so again uh, we, we just wanted to thank you for uh joining us today no thank you for having me it's been such a pleasure and if anybody hasn't seen a banquet make sure you go and check it out well, uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Hopefully, during your after your next project, we can link up again and talk to you about that. Uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for tuning in. And thank you again to Ruth Paxton for joining us. And, uh, you know, I feel like we've talked to of the people we've interviewed lately. It's a lot of directors that, like, are just getting their start at just putting out quality movies. So it's going to be interesting to see a lot of a lot of these directors here in the future. Dude, I thought that too. Like, all these debut films that are just hitting it. Like, all these debut films that are just, like, like legit good movies. Like, I don't know. That's It's crazy. All these first films by these people are just really good. And join us next week when we talk with Brian Usna. And uh, you can follow us online at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Yeah, YouTube you wanted to listen to the audio on a video (laughs) but still just the audio anyway high on horror 420 check out our website highonhorror.com you can email us questions for puff puff ask at highonhorror420 at gmail.com and uh, I think that'll about wrap her up catch you later see ya